the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. Abraham Lincoln said this in the Gettysburg Address, November 19th, 1863, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. His speech was there to pay tribute to one of the most bloodiest battles, the Civil War. Thousands of soldiers would be killed on both sides of the battle. And a great cemetery had been constructed and was to be dedicated. It's the National Soldier Cemetery. And to formalize the event, the organizers locked up one of the best known speakers of the day, Edward Everett. He had a rich resume serving as the president of Harvard, governor of Massachusetts, U.S. Senator, and Secretary of State. He was well-known and would be a keynote speaker for this event. And in surprise acceptance from a rather cursory invitation, the organizers also secured Abraham Lincoln to say just a few words. He traveled there for the occasion even to give just a brief remark. Everett spoke, though, for nearly two hours, a normal time for such an address, and at this time, audience members stood. So you have two things to be thankful for this morning. <laughs> One, I won't preach for two hours, I think. And two, you get to sit. So count your blessings. Lincoln came and spoke for three minutes, which was short even for these side of, sort of remarks. And in it he said, the world will little note nor long remember what it, we say here. And this was from the brief address, and I guess he was wrong wasn't he? Those words are now carved in stone at the Lincoln Memorial at one end of the Washington Mall. The words themselves are, our, uh, are there to remind us again of the significance of that. I remember hearing these words when I was in school, even having to write a paper about the speech. This is one of the most well-known speeches in English language. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I won't read the whole thing. You know it. Everett wrote Lincoln several days after the speech, and he said this, I should be glad if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. And yet there is something attractive about Lincoln's kind of modesty, isn't there? The world will little note nor long remember what we say here. Lincoln, the president of the United States, who had spent a great deal of time working on this speech, didn't expect his words to be remembered. I mean, the people were there to hear Edward Everett. Lincoln was only there to give this brief dedication and, and then to be forgotten. And this is how he thought of himself. And what do we call that? Humility. And when I say humility, I know the word has positive overtones in the church. We think of tastefulness or caution or kindness. Definitely not there to toot your own horn. All positive things. But when we read the Bible, as we look at the culture when these things were transpiring, humility was not seen as something positive. It wasn't a virtue. Humility was regarded at best more like how we regard servitude and at worst, weakness. And today, most in our culture would think that humility is a foolish thing to strive for. From the highest officials in our land to the lowest worker, humility is for the weak. It's for the foolish. If you don't want to look dumb, you don't admit you're wrong. Furthermore, our world and our flesh doesn't want to be humble. We want to, to assert ourselves. But we can't look like we don't know what we're doing. We can't admit when we have 
been or even when we've failed. We don't want to do that. Today, ego and assurance of one's own greatness are the traits that our world wants to cultivate, not humility. What do you think of humility? Is that a trait that you're seeking to grow? Is it even on your radar? How do you respond when others come to you and show you your faults, your failures, your sins? Does your inner lawyer rise up to defend yourself? Or are you able to listen, to take note, to pursue humility and grow? For the next 45 minutes, we're going to look at a chapter in the scriptures that show us three different characters. All three show us humility, some positive, some negative. And one of the things that I really love about the Bible is the fact that there's so many different genres together in one book. When we're in the New Testament, Paul's letters are very direct and they're very zero in on what we need to know and what we need to apply to our lives. But in the Old Testament books of the Psalms, it's filled with beautiful poetry that captures our hearts and sparks our emotions. And the Bible is a magnificent book about our magnificent God. But for the last year, we've been primarily in a historical book, looking at characters. And we are drawn each week into a new story with some new characters and new settings and new situations. Godly people and some very ungodly people. The Bible is a magnificent book. There, there really isn't a book quite like it. And this morning, we're, we're brought into the story of three people. Nabal, who serves as a warning to us, as, a, as one as considered harsh, for the scriptures say, someone who's a narcissist. And then David, who serves as a warning to our fleshly tendency to seek revenge. And Abigail, who serves us well to be a peacemaker in the relationships that we have. All three will teach us something this morning. I've been praying for you, church, this week. Praying that God would teach you and you would bring your lives under the word of God this morning as we look at these three characters. There's, there's literally something here for everyone. So this morning, we're gonna walk through the text in the three main points. First, the foolishness of Nabal. The foolishness of Nabal, first. Second, the wisdom of Abigail. And third, the humility of David. So the foolishness of Nabal, the wisdom of Abigail, and the humility of David. So I wanna pray and ask God to teach and to guide and to correct us. So you pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as the body of Christ and to open up your word. God, I ask that you would help your people that are seated here. Help them to understand your word, to apply it to their lives. I pray that they leave different than when they came in. I pray that they'll become like your son. That you would receive all the honor and glory for what we'll do in this place and what we'll say we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the foolishness of Nabal. If you haven't turned already, 1 Samuel 25, starting in verse one. Now Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in the house of Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. We've heard very little about Samuel since, since chapter 16 of this book, since he abandoned Saul after his rejection of God. And Samuel anointed David and effectively fell away in, in the book. He's there ministering, it said earlier, in Ramah, and not, not really sure if he knows all the details of what happened between uh, Saul and Samuel, um, but he continues to serve the Lord. And here in chapter 25, we learn that Samuel is now passed on from this life to the next. In verse two, and there was a man whose business was in Carmel. The, the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail, 
The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. And so here we're introduced to two new characters in the story, Nabal and Abigail. And we learn a lot about these two in these verses. Nabal is wealthy. He's also harsh and behaves badly, it says. And Abigail was married to Nabal. She's discerning and beautiful. I wish I knew why these two ever got married. Perhaps it was an arranged marriage. We're not sure. Perhaps maybe at one point Nabal was, was a decent man. Either way, he isn't now, and she's hitched to him. Nabal's name gives us some details about who he is. In Hebrew, his name means fool or stupid. What a great name. Not sure if his name was given to him by his parents. We're not sure what high hopes these parents must have had for their child. Let's call him Nabal. Stupid. I'm guessing that his name was given to him later in life when he lived out who he was. Either way, it's not good. The Bible doesn't speak kindly about fools. Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Isaiah 32.6, for the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and to deprive the thirsty of the drink. Boy, this will be seen in Nabal. So not only his name is described here, but his behavior is described. He's harsh and he behaves badly. But then there's Abigail. She is everything Nabal is not. He was a fool, but she was discerning. He was harsh, but she was beautiful. People were naturally drawn towards Abigail and they're repulsed by Nabal. There was an attractiveness to, to who Abigail was and disgust for her husband. They're polar opposites and here they are married to each other. And both of these descriptions would come into play for this chapter. Look at verse four. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. So I need to explain a little bit what's going on. David and his men have, have been camped out in Perin and then went to, to, to Carmel where Nabal's shepherds kept his flock. And it, remember earlier, Nabal is a rich guy. He has 3,000 livestock. So, so taking David at his word, he protected that flock from any enemies that might come into the area. He had served Nabal. And so much so that not, it says here, not even one sheep was lost during this time. And David and his men acted in kindness and generosity towards Nabal through the protection of his wealth, his, his money. They protected his sheep. And now was the time of year when they were shearing the sheep, a time of great celebration and feasting. And David's request of Nabal was a reasonable one since he had provided such a service for him. Literally, he was protecting his investment, his money, making Nabal's bank account grow. And David assumes that Nabal would see this generosity and readily give him food out of gratitude. But David doesn't know who he's dealing with. Verse 10, and Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? 
There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? See, to, to, to Nabal, David symbolized everything that was wrong in Israel that day. Nabal viewed David as a servant who had broken away from his master Saul, and Nabal is proving what his name means. He is a fool. Everyone recognized that David would be the future king. Abigail would attest to it later. I believe Nabal also knew. He's trying to deflect. David? David who? I never heard of him. Sounds like some runaway slave of the king trying to scam me of my hard-earned money. He's stupid. And he's living up to his name. He regards David just as Saul does, as a disobedient child who has run away from his responsibilities for the king. He's a rebellious servant in Nabal's mind. And Nabal despises David and refuses any kindness to him. Do you hear the words that he speaks here in verse 11? This is Nabal. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed from my shears and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? Friends, he's a narcissist. Do you see it? It's all about his stuff. My bread, my water, my meat, my shears. There's no way that he's going to get his stuff. And he sends back word to David. Verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. David is outraged with this insult. All that he had done for Nabal and his wealth, and now he's, this is how he's being repaid. There's no explanation of what David was thinking. We get a full view of it, though, in verse 13. Every man strap on his sword. That's what he's thinking. Mount up, boys. Locked and loaded. We're going to take care of this idiot. And most of us can relate to David a little bit here. He's still a man after God's own heart, but living in the flesh that God gave him. He has the potential still to be vengeful and violent. David didn't respond to this frustration very well. Why did he respond this way? David responded this way and fell into sin because he wasn't on guard against it. We are likewise easily led into sin when we're not expecting a challenge to our character and grace. I mean, Peter is a prime example for us in the New Testament, isn't he? On the night of Jesus' betrayal, he's first to jump up and protect Jesus, but later that evening, he's, when he's followed Jesus, he, he fails miserably. Peter had his guard down, and he sinned when questioned by a servant girl in the courtyard. And we can sin like David, too, when we respond to spiritual success by then relying on ourselves and losing our dependence upon God's grace when we forego the need to pray and to read his word. And once David's flesh was unrestrained by God, by relying on him, he flies off the handle to this fool navel. A.W. Pink has said, no man stands a moment longer than divine grace upholds him. The strongest are weak as water. Immediately the power of the spirit is withdrawn. The most mature and experienced Christian acts foolishly the moment He'd be left to himself. As soon as communion with Christ is broken, as soon as we cease looking alone to him, we are helpless. This is why we need to remember the gospel, friends. We're not sufficient 
in and of ourselves. We need Christ for each and every moment of our lives. David will need preaching to be swayed from this destructive behavior. And we will be, we'll see later who comes to preach this good news to him. One last thing, though. The foolishness of Nabal won't just affect himself, but as we see, it impacts his household. This is always the case with foolishness. Do you remember the story of Narcissus? He was an attractive person, but he was also arrogant and incapable of receiving love and giving love to anyone. For his frigid affection, the goddess Nemesis cursed him in the most helpless way, making him fall in love with the image that he projected of himself. Day after day, he bent over and caught his reflection in the glassy surface of the water, longing for the image he saw. So much so that one day he noticed his reflection at the bottom of a well and jumped in and drowned. He was most definitely full of himself. He likes what he sees, he wants more of it, and he finds only satisfaction in it. A narcissist. Does this sound like you? You might say, no, no, no. It's not me at all. But how often did you check your smartphone this week on social media to see how many likes you got on the pictures you posted? Uh-oh. I'm stepping on toes now, aren't I? I was convicted this week as I read a book, I'm halfway through, on ways that our smartphone is affecting us. And the author pricked my conscience in that area. Isn't that the same as narcissists? Or maybe you demand to be heard, to be accepted, to be wanted and needed. Isn't that the same as narcissists? I believe we all have some room to grow here, friends. And may the example of Nabal here give us pause on how we might be searching for our significance in, in others, and our things, and what people think of us. But we move from Nabal, and we move to the second point, the wisdom of Abigail. Now, I'm not going to defend the actions of David here. He's, he's in the wrong. He's being pushed by a moron to sinfully execute justice. And just a chapter earlier, what we looked at last week, David was smote in his heart for taking just a corner of Saul's robe when his men wanted him to kill Saul. And now David is about to end the life of Nabal for his foolishness. And not just Nabal, he's going to kill all of the young men. And David is wrong here. He's going to be shown this by Abigail. Look at verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Even Nabal's men don't have a very good view of their master. One young man goes and tells Abigail what has happened. This young man should be honored. He steps out in faith here. He knows who David is, and he knows who Abigail is, and he knows that judgment is coming for Nabal and for him and all of the men. But he also knows how foolish Nabal is, and as the, his words reveal, a worthless man. When he uses this expression, we are thrusted back into the book 
Do you remember in chapter two, who was called worthless men? It was Eli's sons, sons of Belial, sons of Satan, worthless men. We've also been told about Abigail in this book. She is discerning, literally good of understanding, and she quickly understands the seriousness of the situation, and she acts. Verse 18, then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Friends, we need more Abigails in this world. She isn't indecisive. No, she acts. She doesn't even seek permission from her husband. She knows she needs to act or others will die because of his foolishness and David's anger. And Abigail acts quickly because Nabal was, was proven himself to be untrustworthy. He wouldn't listen to anyone. And she isn't acting to bring vengeance on Nabal. No, she's acting to protect him and the men. She's also acting to protect her future king. You know, it, it is a serious situation at this point. She's, she knows that if she fails, every male in Nabal's household will be dead, and David will then have the blood in his hands. And so she quickly gets things in order, and she has the men gather up all of the gifts so that she can bring to David. Verse 21. Now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. David is already on his way, and Abigail heads his way to come and redirect him. The faith of Abigail here is astonishing. The courage she displays is challenging. David's words here in 21 and 22 were possibly heard by Abigail as she rode up closer to David and his men. And if that's the case, she, she might have wondered, is there any hope for this situation? David is angry. You know, a chapter ago, he, he held back his anger, but not now. He is intending to return evil for evil. He's going to wipe out Nabal and his men. And the brutality of David's words is lost a little in their translation. There's a vulgar edge to them. Go ahead and read the King James Version this week and you'll see. David is in a dangerous mood when he meets Abigail. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. This is the approach of Abigail. She bows down to him, showing honor to him. She is humble in her, her interaction with David, showing incredible meekness. She's willing to take on the guilt of her worthless husband and ask to have an audience with him. And in the following verses, she has four requests that she has of David. It's fascinating that this is the longest speech by a woman in the Old Testament. And so it would do us good to hear what Abigail says. The first request is in verse 25. She says, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. 
but I, your servant, do not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She doesn't have very many kind things to say about her husband here. It's, it's almost as if she had had to do this sort of thing already in life. And she pleads that David should give no attention to her foolish husband. He is a fool by name and by nature. And David wouldn't have been so mistreated if she only knew of his visit earlier, she says. And it moves to the second request, verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to, eat, to do evil to my Lord be as able. The second request is a prayer. The Lord had kept David from disaster by putting Abigail in his path that day. God would use her to save David from bloodshed. She was there to serve David and to encourage him to trust in the Lord, to allow God to deal with his enemies, even if it was her own husband. And the third request, verse 27. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. She now asks that can she give, do good to him by presenting to him the food that Nabal should have given him in the first place. Friends, do you see the humility of, of Abigail here? Uh, it leads to the, the last, the fourth and final request, verses 28 through 31. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. You see, Abigail really did take on herself the responsibility of her foolish husband, and now she asks for forgiveness. And she doesn't offer a lame confession. I'm sorry. She doesn't say, I'm sorry for my foolish husband's words that might have hurt you. She doesn't say, I'm sorry that you were offended. Friends, those are sorry, pathetic apologies. Apologies from a narcissist. Because they lay the guilt at the feet of the person offended. No, she admits the guilt. Even though it's not her own. She owns it. And she bases her appeal for forgiveness in the astonishing prediction of David's coming kingdom. She speaks here like Hannah does in chapter 2. Prophetically. Her language here anticipated that great promise that would come to David. She spoke as if she knew of the promise made to him that was going to happen in 2 Samuel 7. She speaks in extravagant terms of the care the Lord will show toward David. She knows who he is, and she knows what the Lord has done through David. Anyone who would seek David's life, the Lord would hurl away like a stone that David slung so effectively when he killed Goliath. And she puts forth David's coming kingdom as the basis of forgiveness. In the speech, she shows us what kind of king David would be. He wouldn't be like Saul because he would be God's king. And so he couldn't shed blood needlessly or take vengeance into his own hands. He was to be different. He would need to be a king that trusted God 
Vengeance is for God to take. And David is to entrust his life and his work to his God. And Abigail, with her prophetic words, had been placed in David's path this day for this very purpose, to draw David back to the heart of God. I'm challenged by Abigail and the wisdom of Abigail. And this leads to the third one. So we've looked at the foolishness of Nabal, the wisdom of Abigail, and third, the humility of David. So would David listen to Abigail? Would he be able to be taught by a woman, to be led by wisdom, or would he respond like Nabal? Verse 32, and David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal's so much as one male. Friends, praise God for women like Abigail. You know, in, in the midst of her humble apology, she wove in a biblical view of taking personal justice and vengeance. And she leads David to understand what the word of God says. David wouldn't want that guilty conscience or the reputation that would pull away the glory of God. And her arguments were gently made, yet very direct and applicable. Her speech here illustrates Galatians 6.1. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, ye who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness and keep watching yourself lest you be tempted. And here, it is a woman to be the spiritual one to restore a man. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And, and men, if you think you're above having a woman come and show you your sin, then, well, you need to spend more time in this text and humble yourself to the word of God. You need to go back and study because you're fighting against what Scripture says. David is not too manly to let the, the sound advice and instruction from a woman here affect him. And praise God for the work in the heart of David here. David's back down is simply breathtaking. From bloodletting rage to apparently calm thankfulness to God for her intervention in his life. It's astonishing. He's gratefully acknowledged the wisdom and goodness of what she has brought to him. And he recognizes her courage in even doing it. If, if she hadn't come to offer peace to him towards her foolish husband, this rage would most definitely brought extreme harm to their household. And do we make it a matter of praise when God prevents us from carrying out evil intentions? We should, friends. And this is what David does here. He openly confesses his sinful intent and his mission. David does have readiness to admit his fault. And this would appear again later when he's confronted by Nathan. But unfortunately, most of us men instinctively deny any wrongdoing and seek to gloss over it. We seek to try to hide it or excuse it or shift blame. And men, this has been happening since the garden, right? When God comes to Adam and Eve and after the Eve, Adam says, what? It's her fault. You gave her to me, God. You see, men, we instinctively think that greatness lies in the appearance of sinlessness rather than genuine openness of our sins. And when we do this, men, we deny the gospel. 
Men like Saul, who posture before other men to win their admiration, would keep the sinful oath that David made here. I've got to keep my vow, otherwise the men will think I'm weak. That's what Saul would have done. And what a damning thought to have. David realizes that he is wrong. And he admits it. He confesses it openly. But not Saul. No, Saul. He made an oath earlier, do you remember? Even the oath to kill his own son. And so full of pride, Saul is unwilling to relent. So men, who do you want to be like here? David or Saul? David is displaying for us humility. A readiness to admit when you're wrong and to make things right. And how many marriages here would heal and grow if only men would be willing to admit they're wrong and to seek forgiveness. You men thought you were going to escape this morning because it was Mother's Day, but you're wrong. (laughs) Men, we're the leaders, right? Meaning we have a responsibility. And we will stand before God and give an account of how we lead our families. And men should be the chief repenters in their home. We should be the ones leading our families in repentance. Because the buck stops with us. And we will be held accountable for how we lead our wives and our families. And I want our men in our church to be quick to admit when we're wrong and to humble ourselves. And for us men, David's behavior here is a gift for us this morning. It's a gift for us. And we need to take note and we need to ask God for help and we need to apply it to our lives. Verse 35, David received the gift from her hand, which she brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. So David accepts the gift and effects showing that goodwill has been now established between them. David is relenting on pursuing Nabal and his household and they depart. Verse 36, and Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning when the wine had gone out of him, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became like a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Friends, these verses perfectly display the teaching in scripture that vengeance is for God. The consequences to people's sin isn't always so clear and displayed even this quickly as we read here. But in this case, God's vengeance was swift and obvious for everyone. Abigail comes home to tell her husband what transpired, but he is busy partying. And she'll wait until he's sober. And she does, and it seems that as she shares with him, he has a stroke or a heart attack. It doesn't kill him instantly, but not long after. He makes it 10 more days before he dies. And the author is clear for us. The Lord struck Nabal, 
and he died. It is God who will have vengeance. He will bring judgment to Nabal for his disregard for God's anointed king and ultimately against God. And one day, friends, he will bring judgment for those that die in their sins, who disregard the true king, Jesus. God promises that. You're not promised tomorrow, friends. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent to us to you to take you to him as his wife. David knows who to praise for this judgment. David isn't happy because he thinks that he's avenged. No, don't miss this. David isn't thinking necessarily all about himself. He's thinking about God. He is God's anointed king. He was ultimately the one scorned. He was the one disregarding this. And so David is representing God's rule for the nation. But understand, Nabal scorned God ultimately. And then David takes Abigail for his wife. Verse 41, and she rose and bowed her with her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And David also took Ohinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. And Saul had given Michael his daughter, David's wife, to Paltai, the son of Laish, who was of Gollum. David's first wife, Michal taken away from him by Saul and given to another, effectively saying to him that David is dead in the eyes of Saul. But be careful, friends, just because the Bible describes his multiple marriages of David doesn't mean that God endorses it. In every record of polygamous homes, there are accounts of jealousy and conflicts, and David's polygamy fails to uphold God's perfect design for marriage and would end in leading great harm to him and his household. Well, as we, we end this morning and wrap up, there, there, I want to again briefly look at these three characters and ask for a point of application. Are there are situations in which you are like Nabal. You are harsh or ungracious and unapproachable. I haven't met too many people who are like Nabal all the time. We tend to normally be gracious or approachable, but sometimes some people in some situations push our buttons and we become like Nabal. If you see yourself in Nabal, then you need to make this a matter of prayer and seek help from other believers to, to help disciple you. Walking with God and cultivating the fruit of the Spirit will help remove these tendencies that, that Nabal has here that are in your heart and, and instead fill them then with, with love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And all of those are opposites of Nabal through the Spirit. But what if you're more prone to be like David, who initially was unforgiving and revengeful? Most of us can think of times when we're angry at someone else, and the thought of revenge is so intoxicating that we contemplate doing things um, that no one else would normally do. You maybe even feel justified in your thoughts and your actions. You know, David felt justified too, but that doesn't mean he was right. See, revenge may feel good in the moment, but we will live in regret because we step into a role that wasn't designed for us. 
God is the one who doles out justice and he has placed individuals in our culture to serve him and to serve us to bring justice. Not taking revenge identifies us and trusting God to do what's necessary. The last character we see here is Abigail. So if you find yourself between Nabal and David, God probably wants you to be like Abigail. And there's a reason why I did in the scheduling of sermons for this quarter, when I looked to what was coming in 1 Samuel, I knew that we would deal with this chapter, but I also knew that chapters 24 and 26 were very similar. And so in my scheduling, that's why I had those week before, because I wanted to tackle this chapter on Mother's Day. Um, the character of the story that I, I most want to be like is Abigail. And I thought it was a fitting person to talk about in this day. Now, I understand that Mother's Day is most likely a holiday created by Hallmark to sell more cards, but we can redeem it and we can use it for the glory of God. And today I'm thankful for the women in this church family, whether you're a mother or not. As we've seen already in this text, we need women in our lives. We especially need strong, godly women. Some men, maybe here even this morning, might struggle with the idea, and I'm praying that you will learn I've heard it before that some men like a quiet woman or that guys don't respond well to smart women. And I believe in those, is those issues, those instances, aren't the women, but they're the man. Probably because they're trying to make up for any deficiencies they see in themselves. But men, do we really want women to be weak? And the answer, based upon scripture, is absolutely not. Now, God, in his glorious wisdom and perfect providence, gave me four daughters. <laughs> with the privilege to raise, to be strong, godly women. It's a challenge, but most definitely a privilege. But I believe as a pastor of this church to have strong, godly women is important. And when I say strong, I mean a godly, uh, feminine understanding of who God is and how God works and wanting to serve this God. See, strong, godly women know and share God's word. We've seen this already with Abigail in her speech to David. And David's not moved because of an excellent speech, but more the fact that she knew God. She knew God. She says, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. She knew her God and she shares this with David. Her strength wasn't in her own abilities, but the fact that she knew God and she knew his words. So we, we need strong, godly women who know and share God's word. We also need strong, godly women to rebuke good people. When David set out to kill Nabal, Abigail, Abigail is the one who goes to warn and to give a strong rebuke, a strong rebuke to David for his foolish, vengeful attitude. And she does this with grace and humility. But don't be fooled, this is a godly rebuke. She doesn't think the power is in herself, but she entrusts herself to God, and she's courageous. 
David could have ignored her, but because of how she approached him and because God was working, David listens and heeds the rebuke of Abigail. And strong, godly women rebuke good men who need help in their weaknesses, who need someone to help them show them their sins and their struggles. And strong, godly men can hear rebukes and seek to grow from women. The Abigail presents us with a great example of what a healthy Christian looks like. Her wise approach to David not only averted disaster, her actions remind us of the gospel that comes to us in unbelief and sin and destruction. Like Abigail, Jesus came into our midst in a humble manner. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And then like innocent Abigail, taking the guilt of her husband's sin unto herself, Jesus takes up our sins and bears them before a righteous and holy God. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf and presents his righteousness to God as obedience owned by us. And, and, and way, by analogy, Abigail presents David with provisions owed to him by Nabal, satisfying the demands of justice to avoid his wrath. And Abigail saves Nabal from the wrath of God and all the young men. And Jesus Christ has saved us from the just wrath of a holy God. Abigail isn't Christ or even a type but she points our minds and our hearts to the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you to spend more time this week studying the example of Abigail, and may it strengthen your resolve to be a peacemaker where you live and where you work. And may she and her example in Scripture bring to your mind those examples of Christ and how he has been to us. This morning, we do want to honor and encourage women that are here. And so, our secretary, Sue, has been working hard this week to prepare a gift, so I'm gonna pray, and we're gonna sing, and at the end there, there's gonna be people at the doors we wanna give a gift to you this morning, and so we encourage you to take that, and I pray you would have a, a glorious, enjoyable day as a family, honoring and celebrating your mom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that we've had to come and gather together as the body of Christ and to worship you. And I thank you for the example that we find in your word of, of Abigail. And what a challenge she's been to my heart and my soul this week as I studied your word. And may she be a challenge to all of us. And we recognize we're, our frailty. We all come this morning with struggles. Sins that we're confessing regularly, areas of weakness, and I pray that we would spend and soak our minds in your word this week. May it take root in our hearts and our souls. May it affect us and change us and mold us. May we become more like Jesus Christ. Even though Abigail is an example for us, God, may we become like Jesus, our example, our captain. May we follow him and follow your word. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.